Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from ITV Director of Social Purpose Susie Brown and Fremantle Global Sustainability Manager Katie Tallon about how the TV industry can make a positive impact on the environment. And from former CBS News President Susan Zarinsky about taking on the same role at premium documentary offshoot See It Now Studios. The Edinburgh TV Festival held its first ever climate change conference recently, with speakers including BBC Chief Content Officer Charlotte Moore, documentary maker Kevin MacDonald and Sky Director of Original Drama Megan Livers. Also attending the Climate Content Summit was ITV Director of Social Purpose Susie Brown, who spoke there with Nico Franks about the UK commercial public broadcaster's efforts to make a positive environmental impact and incorporate messages about sustainability in programmes like Love Island, Emmerdale and Coronation Street. And Fremantle Global Sustainability Manager Katie Tallon, who spoke about the RTL Group-owned company's ambitions to become carbon neutral by 2030 and the challenges facing the international TV industry in reducing its negative impact on the environment. I'm Susie Brown and I'm Director of Social Purpose at ITV. So tell me a bit about what that role entails and also with regards to the environment and sustainability. Yeah, so social purpose is the language we choose to use in relation to what you might call responsible business or corporate social responsibility. Um, And the idea of that is to reflect the fact that it's not really about something that's an add-on, that's sort of aside from ITV's day-to-day practice, but more something which is an intrinsic part of our business. If ITV's mission is about reflecting and shaping culture, sort of my bit of the pile is reflecting and shaping culture for good. So... For ITV, that encompasses four focus areas. One on better health and how we're driving audiences to look after their mental and physical health. One on um, diversity and inclusion, which is looked after by um, my colleagues. One on giving back, which is sort of fundraising. We have Soccer Aid for UNICEF, a massive fundraising platform, volunteering. And then last, but very much not least, our programme around climate action. So that encompasses what we're doing behind the screens to achieve ITV's net zero goals and um, increasingly with more focus on what we're doing on screen to um, meet our climate content pledge and normalise sustainable behaviours through all our shows across all audiences for all genres. And on that net zero target, tell me a bit about that and also what exactly net zero means because we heard at the Climate Content Summit that viewers, they may now know what the what climate change means and what the climate crisis entails, but net zero is one of those terms that they're still a bit unsure of. Yeah, I mean, this, this world of sustainability is absolutely flooded with challenging language and acronyms and some of it's quite useful if you're in the world of sustainability. So, for example... ITV has signed up to the best practice definition of net zero. Net zero gets banded about quite a lot. Um, and so when we originally signed up to net zero, we were signing up to our science-based targets for 2030 and effectively um, offsetting the, the emissions that we, didn't, uh, we weren't able to reduce by 2030. We've now signed up to the more stringent version of net zero as identified by the Science-Based Target Initiative, which is a 90% reduction across all our emissions, those that we control, our direct emissions, and those in our supply chain, our indirect emissions, um, by 2050. So we have that sort of best practice near-term and far-term goal. 
But I think net zero is, is sort of rightly being challenged in terms of what does that mean. And um, so I think the language that we would use internally and with our peers is different to the language that we would use on screen to try and describe um, the actions that the world needs to take to, to make the world more sustainable. And you mentioned incorporating sustainability into uh, the programmes. And we heard also at the Climate Content Summit that more and more commissioners are looking to commission projects that are kind of have themes around sustainability woven in. How far does ITV have to go until that is the case with, with its programming? So ITV was one of the, the sort of founding signatories of the Climate Content Pledge. Carolyn McCall, our CEO, launched it alongside the other UK broadcaster CEOs at COP26 in 2021. Uh, so it was something we really strongly believe in. Um, and I think it's interesting looking at how different broadcasters and streamers work with the audiences they have. And so ITV's approach to the Climate Content Pledge will naturally be quite different to the BBC approach or to the Channel 4 approach. Um, for us, obviously the most important thing is reaching those mass audiences that ITV is famous for and can deliver, but with those messages. And that probably means there will be some content that's sort of on the nose. For example, um, A Year on Planet Earth, brilliant piece of natural history programming um, that first aired on ITVX earlier this year. Um, but there's also I think a real opportunity for that Trojan horse approach where it's climate content but not necessarily as you know it. You know, I'm this is this is my day job. I'm professionally very interested in tackling climate change. I'm personally very interested in tackling climate change. But at the end of the day, I want to sit and watch Love Island. So how can we meet audiences where they are and embed those messages, such as through Love Island, for example? rather than necessarily always expect it to be through the world of factual or, um, or news, important as they are. So I think that's where, I think that's what's really exciting for ITV because it's talking to those people who are watching Emmerdale or Coronation Street or watching daytime TV, watching Love Island, which you might not necessarily immediately think of as being vehicles for a climate content message, but yet they can be. And we heard with that Love Island example, a key thing has been a change in kind of the brand partnership. So having previously been associated with the kind of fast fashion brand, now it's eBay and about secondhand clothing. So you see, is it too early to kind of see a, an impact from, from that? Uh, well, it's, it's not too early, actually, because we're in the third series of it already. So it launched last summer um, with, with the, the language we like to use is pre-loved not secondhand, it's pre-love. So uh, eBay as a pre-love partner for Love Island. And that's actually behind the scenes much more complicated than just a sort of commercial partnership because it's about eBay sourcing a lot of clothes that the Love Islanders want to wear. They work with the stylist to make sure that it's absolutely true to the show's kind of style first um, roots and, and making sure that those Love Islanders want to wear the clothes and feel really comfortable in them and feel enabled to make their own choices about them through a shared wardrobe. So I think the results speak for themselves in terms of, well, a, eBay's come back for a third for a third series. So you watch, watch um, Love Island at the moment and you'll see pre-love fashion really featuring quite strongly. Um, but also the results in terms of a massive increase in search for pre-love fashion within eBay. So I think it was a 1400% increase in search for pre-love fashion in eBay. And then we also looked at, for viewers of Love Island, have, do they claim to have changed their own behavior and extrapolate, extrapolated to population level? We saw that 2.7 million people said they were making an effort to shop more sustainably as a result of having seen this partnership. So I think 
we can't underestimate not just the benefit of seeing it and seeing it in a really mainstream and quite aspirational context, but also some of the deeper engagement in, oh wait, I'm seeing people styling this and making decisions about it. And it takes away some of the, the trickiness. If you're, if you're new to the idea of pre-love fashion, it takes away some of the scariness of, hold on, I know how to shop in, in, a, in a classic online retail environment, what do I do here? And I think that's also part of the benefit of that sort of longer term, deeper partnership. And I suppose it's also, you know, going the way that young people are thinking about the world in terms of, you know, they're leading the charge in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, like you mentioned, pre-loved clothing <laughs> and kind of being more conscientious. Um, so does it make kind of sense from that perspective of actually wanting to attract a younger audience to be more, you know, to include more kind of sustainability themes in programs. Yeah, I think um, I think it does. I think that's why it works, doesn't it? And I think in all of these things, and we see it actually in our health work as well, the opportunity for when you have this mass reach that you know we're lucky enough to have of where where we're able to kind of push on an open door versus sort of running full strength at a closed door and seeing the impact of that. So I think we, we all need to, one of, one of the, um, one of the uh, broadcasters actually, North ITV mentioned at the Climate Content Summit where they try to sort of dial up the climate content over and above the audience tolerance of it and actually they saw viewing drop as a result. So I think we're always trying to dance that dance of bringing viewers with us and being led by them as well um, in that in that uh, progressive way when it comes to climate action and certainly we see that from our younger viewers who are still coming to Love Island in droves. And that was yeah one of the main talking points I feel like at the event was that kind of need for it to be framed in a positive way but how do you ensure it doesn't almost go too far because that catastrophizing side of, of, of it has been said not to be effective but equally is there a way of kind of um, in terms of framing it too positively, then it not kind of having the urgency that, it, that is actually required. Yeah, I think it's been, it was interesting, the climate content, some of the, that was one of the big themes, wasn't it, of how, how do you, in a, in a state of climate crisis, ensure that we're bringing people with us? and actually um, not leading to paralysis where you feel that it's impossible to move. And that's for us as professionals, so making it feel like it's, it's possible to embed climate content. It doesn't have to only be within the context of search genres. But I think that's where the broad church of um, within ITV and beyond ITV of, you know, we have a very strong news output. We also have a, a really strong regional news output. So in 2022, there was over 100 hours across regional news of climate content at a local level, which again is sort of, it's enabling, isn't it? It makes you understand, well, this isn't just about, you know, big temperatures or, or really scary weather events in my own country or other countries, but also what does that mean for me and my local community, both in terms of what might be going wrong, but also in terms of the solutions but also the, the range of different genres. So what is going to be right for a current affairs tonight special, uh, with Laura Tobin, for example, who was also at the Climate Content Summit, um, it will be quite different to how you know, a contestant might tell that story on Britain's Got Talent um, or what might, be, what might be right for a, I don't know, a vegetarian cooking segment on a daytime show. And I think you know, it's different strokes for different folks. And I, we, we need to use the richness of our of our sort of breadth of genres to tackle this from all angles. I, and I think the sort of the science of behaviour change suggests 
that as well, that it's, you need a multiplicity of messengers to um, make the stuff move forward. And a lot of the things you mentioned earlier about your role struck me as having some crossover with what B Corp is trying to do. And I feel like in the supermarket, I'm seeing more and more kind of food companies with B Corp label, but I'm not seeing that many TV companies. There are a few exceptions, but is B Corp on ITV's radar, be it wanting to become a B Corp organization or working more with B Corp organizations? That's a great question. I think that there are loads of different um, standards um, and disclosures that, di we, that people can sign up to. Um, so at the moment, what ITV, ITV discloses to the Carbon Disclosure Project, we're an A-rated company, which puts us in the top 2% of companies disclosing in the world. We, as we need to, disclose the task force for climate-related financial disclosures. Um, and we have science-based targets. So there are various of these different sort of really important uh, standards that we're signed up to and, we're, and B Corp overlaps a lot of them. So I wouldn't rule it out for the future, but the thing that we're all focusing on is ultimately decarbonizing our operations and obviously using our, using our, um, our airtime and our, and our productions to do that on screen. So at the moment, we're not, we're not thinking about becoming a B Corp, but we there are so many aspects of the B Corp movement that we chime with. So, I, you know, culturally, I could see there could be a fit. And just finally, uh, it was interesting how at the Climate Content Summit, the food was broadly vegetarian. It might have even all been vegan. Yeah, they were vegan, yeah. Mm. So do you see a future where actually broadcasters, I'm thinking about, you know, daytime TV or cooking shows, kind of phase out things that are harmful to the environment? broadly the meat industry so in the content but also in advertising as well what could that be a, a potential kind of future scenario so i think this comes back to moving with our audiences so i think if a, i would love a please if you know somebody who'd like to do this piece of work i'd love a piece of analysis on recipes seen on itv and how they've changed over the last 10 years because i certainly see a sort of a huge increase in vegetarianism and veganism shown on screen um, because that's sort of move, moving with the times and yeah, that's constantly reflecting and shaping culture. Um, so I do, I do see those changes and likewise with sustainable fashion, you know, it's not just, it's not just on Love Island and you see, you see that in other shows of how to upcycle or restyle existing, existing fashion. So I, I, yeah, I do, I do see that changing. I think it's interesting thinking about the food um, uh, and whether the right thing is always to go, well, okay, if you're going to be talking about climate, well, it needs to be all vegan. Um, and it goes back to what Chris Stark was saying at the beginning of the Climate Content Summit as, as CEO of the um, Climate Change Committee of should we be painting this as radical warlike effort or should we be saying this is about very, very broad change that isn't necessarily as radical as it might be painted to be. So maybe we should, I'm very happy to eat vegan food, but maybe we should be sort of giving people more vegan options rather than saying it's all or nothing. Sorry, I don't know why I should be talking about the diet at the um, climate content summit, but I think it's, it's brilliant to see. But I think we can, we, can, we can sort of allow it all because, you know, 100 people swapping out one meal a week for a, a vegan option is just as good as a few people becoming, becoming vegans full time. So um, yeah, I think we need, we need that breath. I'm Katie Tallon, Global Sustainability Manager at Fremantle. I've just been in the role six months, but been working in this intersection between the creative industries and sustainability for a number of years, recently at BAFTA Albert. 
um, and, and just really passionate that, that this industry has a really great opportunity to, to mobilise positive action for the planet. And yeah, we're here today at the Climate Content Summit and that so far has been one of the main takeaways is that rather than the kind of catastrophizing message that maybe some um, TV programs have been, been portraying when it comes to the climate, actually a more positive approach is the way to go. Yeah, and there's been some new studies that have been announced today from the likes of Ipsos Mori and other research fellows out there who are, who are showing exactly that, that audiences are not really responding um, in terms of action to the really catastrophic messaging and actually they're wanting to see solutions and, and to know what they can do to, to, towards solving the climate crisis. And in terms of what you do at Fremantle, kind of day-to-day, what does that involve? Sustainability is really broad. I sort of touch every area of the business. I've got, Fremantle's a huge global company, so I've got quite a strategic role. I haven't got the sort of time to work on every single production level, but I enable productions through training and resources to reduce their carbon footprint so all the nitty-gritty like trying to switch to biofueling generators trying to reduce travel but I'm here at the climate content summit because actually half my role is also looking at what we can do in terms of our content to speak to audiences about the climate crisis actually society has the solutions to solve the crisis we've got we know what we need to do technologically in terms of business but it's a cultural shift we need and through tv and um, other creative industries that's where we're going to get the shift um, that we require so i work with our producers in doing training and workshop to help them incorporate all sorts of messaging on the climate crisis but really try and move away from the apocalyptic doom into something that's solutions focused and there was a commissioner's session where one of the points quite a few commissioners made is they will want to see kind of the environment and climate and sustainability kind of uh, have a presence in every programme they commission now, kind of in a similar way in, in terms of weaving it in, in terms of what commissioners were saying a few years ago about diversity and kind of embedding that in their programmes. To what extent, how, how far away is Fremantle from in every programme it works on? throughout its labels, having the climate kind of somewhere within it, in both scripted and unscripted? Yeah, Fremantle is predominantly still a, an entertainment format production company, but we are growing in both drama output and documentary output with uh, an increasing number of labels in both of those genres. We're, just like the rest of the in- industry, have still got a long way to go to incorporating climate content into all of those different sorts of genres. Actually, it's really tricky to look at studio entertainment shows like X Factor and Idols and Got Talent because they're not about climate change at all and people don't turn on to hear about climate content. But as we heard this morning in the, um, in the session with the commissioners, is that there's ways that even entertainment shows can do it through, say, branded partnerships. Um, and we saw we had the Love Island example where they've switched from having a fast fashion sponsor to to a, a eBay, and the results that that can drive. But I thought that commissioner's session was super interesting because we had the natural history commissioner, who it was almost redundant in that panel alongside other commissioners from other genres because everyone knows that natural history, yes, has a play a role to play in connecting audiences to the natural world. 
but you're really preaching to a converted audience then, and we need we need program output from all different genres to be talking to their own audiences. So we need to talk to audiences of sports and comedy, magazine shows, soap operas about the climate crisis, meeting them where they're at. Um, and that's actually how we get change across the broad spectrum of our audiences. And programming from some Fremantle labels uh, was nominated for a recent Global Production Sustainability Awards and the farm, which is produced in, I think, Strix in Norway, um, won. So can you tell me a bit about some of the, the kind of methods that they've used? Yeah, so I'm, I was nothing to do with this. This was before my time at Fremantle, so it's the production team who really are the, the winners of this award. It was the inaugural uh, award of its type on a global scale so it's for best sustainable production at the global production awards at the recent Cannes um, festival they what the judges said that they won on a number of counts um, they made huge impact on areas of that are really material to their carbon footprint. So they tackled, for example, power, and they made sure that they powered using only the grid. Um, in Even in remote um, filming locations, they weren't using generators. They cut down massively on crew and cast transport by having accommodation very close to location, for example. They also did things that really engaged the crew. So they had a huge um, variety of vegetarian catering that the chef really en embraced, so much so that they, um, they put out a cast and crew cookbook of vegetarian cookery from the caterers as a result, and that's gained huge um, popularity. So that just goes to show, doesn't it, that food's a really good way to engage people in everything. Um, but they also... Uh, it was a show about um, you know, farming and, of course, tackle um, the impact of farming and sustainable farming techniques on screen as well, so reaching audiences on, on the subject. And this event has been quite UK-focused. Obviously, as you mentioned, Fremantle has lots of production companies in lots of different countries. How are you seeing across that portfolio the differing approaches and who's leading the way and who's lagging behind? I wouldn't want to say who's leading the way, um, but because I think that different countries have different challenges and different opportunities as well. I mean, Norway is a real paradox because they have, as a country, some of the you know, most ambitious climate targets in the world, and yet they're a big exporter of oil and gas. And then you look at India, who are really struggling to um, find the funding to switch to renewable energy supplies. So um, I, it's everyone seems to be making the, the maximum effort that they can. I'm really aware that, frankly, net zero isn't the top of everyone's agenda in some parts of the world. Um, but I'm I'm proud to have played a role in the UK so far in in this space. I think that there's there's great ambition here. Um, as there is in, in various pockets of the world as well. And we've spoken previously, and I've heard you speak about things like um, brain print, so as opposed to kind of things like the carbon footprint, but the kind of brain, well, can you kind of take me through that, that term and what it means for, for programming? Sure, I'm really pleased that you're using the word brain print. I think it's a neat summary. Essentially, a carbon footprint is the the impact that an 
in this case a TV production can have, but it could be an individual or a, a mobile phone, for example, the brain print is almost the, po- the opposite of that. It's the positive impact that the, a TV show can have on its audience's own carbon footprint. So, for example, through um, climate storytelling, we might be able to engage audiences in using renewable water bottles or switching from fast fashion, and that's having that's u- utilising our storytelling powers for good. And finally, what would you like to see as some of the next steps? Obviously, an event like this is is very positive, and there's probably going to be more and more events like this in the industry calendar. But yeah, what do you want to see happen next? Today is really positive, and we've got to remember how far we've come on this journey. Just even a couple of years ago, to have a panel of commissioners talking quite positively about wanting more climate content is is remarkable. But it's got to translate into us seeing more content, a diverse array of content, climate content on screen, and also, of course, translating to in audience impact. I think we need to keep reiterating these messages. It's a shame that this is a siloed event from Edinburgh Festival, Maine. I would love to see a McTaggart lecture on this subject, uh, how to tackle a climate crisis, or indeed it woven into every industry conversation that we have. Um, So maybe in a couple of years we'll be there. Former CBS News President Susan Zerinsky was tapped to take up the same role at an offshoot of the US news outlet in September 2021, when See It Now Studios was launched to produce premium documentaries. Within a year, the unit had made 51 hours of content, including secrets of the oligarch wives, about the wives of the men who put Russian President Vladimir Putin in charge, and four-part docuseries 11 Minutes, which follows a mass shooting at the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival in Las Vegas in 2017. More recently, See It Now Studios was involved with 90-minute doc King Charles, The Boy Who Walked Alone, a Paramount Plus original co-produced with UK-based Blink Films. The firm's among a wave of documentary-focused production units being established by big-name news outlets, with others including ABC News Studios and Bloomberg Originals. Zurinsky spoke to Jordan Pinto about transitioning into her role as a production company head, how the fledgling unit is supplying content to brands within the Paramount global ecosystem and looking to sell outside the group, working with international partners. Firstly, Susan, uh, how are you doing today? Um, challenging, you know, they don't call it the Paramount Mountain for no reason. We're in these insane times. So everything is challenging. Today is a challenging day. Okay, well, I I won't quiz you too much further on the challenging day because we are here to talk about uh, See It Now Studios. Um, So it's been about, I think it's about 18 months now, just a little over since the official launch of See It Now Studios was revealed. Um, maybe to, to begin with, you could tell me a bit about, um, just quickly about the, the formation of, of that entity and your growth and progress over the past 18 months. So when um, George Cheeks came to me with this idea that he wanted to form a studio that was a bit of a hybrid, you know, it would be under CBS News, but we would produce for Paramount Plus. We would produce for BET, Black Entertainment Television. We would produce for Smithsonian. Uh, The only people we really weren't producing for was MTV because they seem to have the planet of humans inhabiting their, um, their, their, their solar system. 
But what is also unusual about our studio is that we are being encouraged to sell outside. But unlike other studios, I don't have to shop an idea to other platforms to see do they want it or not. So very often we are a combination of co-productions with other people, uh, developing our own IP, or there's the small filmmaker that doesn't come surrounded by the 55 agents or agencies and but they have a great story and what we provide is uh, my colleague Terry Wrong a longtime ABC his colleague Isu Saliba um, they are professionals in this genre of uh, of docu series uh, he actually invented the uh, um, what it was, I guess it was Hopkins 24/7 which began a whole series of verite um, he left ABC formed his own company and so I felt that with my experience, I really sought a very strong editorial partner, as well as really the outside world, which I had not been a part of. You know, I had only worked within CBS, produced a fair amount of documentaries, but for CBS or Showtime, the the family was limited. And we are a um, small but mighty team, but we're working with multiple groups um, in a lot of co-productions, as well as developing our own IP and selling that outside to, you know, the streamers, the cables. And, and it's, it's exciting because there's no, there are no rules for us. We report, I report directly to George Cheeks. Um, and the way Paramount Plus works is really they're responsible for setting a budget. Okay. But George and I are the editorial gatekeepers. So if something comes in or we've developed something, we go to George and we say, we think this is terrific. We think it's a, a 90. We think it's a six-parter. We think it's a two-parter. And if George likes it, we get the thumbs up. We have to be in a certain budget. I have to meet that budget. And so we go at it. And, you know, I thought being the new kid on the block might be a little difficult, but, you know, I'm lucky I've been in this business so long that I've established a certain reputation as has Terry. So while we were introducing ourselves, most people knew of our work. And so the credibility and the the journalism that is behind what we do is really just top quality. You know, all journalists are documentarians, not all documentarians are journalists. But in our first year, believe it or not, we produce 51 hours of content. And that's like starting with a couple of desks and a couple of phones, you know, and I had been in charge of the news division. And so it was a extreme, extreme home makeover, if you will. Uh, but I found that the rhythm and the pace is exceptionally busy. Um, I found the people pitching us were smart and really had ideas that we could see. And then there are others where you would get a pitch, no kidding, that was on homosexuality and animals. So we took the Zoom because we were somewhat amused and um, I didn't quite go for that project. But See It Now has become both a network provider of content, a lot for Paramount Plus, uh, a lot for BET. 
And we have an eight-part series running on Smithsonian now. I may have forgotten to say Smithsonian. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's plenty to unpack there, Susan. Um, I'll, I'll pick up firstly on you said um, you'd produced 51, 51 hours of content thus far. That's correct. Um, if I can just kind of put this into buckets in my mind, is is that that 51 hours, is it like is it um, docu-series that are kind of produced over quite a long amount of time, like a year, or is some of this no, more, I mean, more fast turnaround? No, some some are some are faster turnarounds than others. Um, being in the news business, uh, the saying is always, you take as much time as you have. So, um, you know, we've worked on things for six to eight months. Uh, we did a turnaround project uh, called The Secret Lives of the Oligarch Wives, which was a way into Putin and his brain, not just whiny women who've lost their yachts. These are women whose husbands have been killed. Uh, but they were in the room with Putin. So it was a, a different path to understand Putin and really then get into the Ukraine. So it was a back door, but it was one that did well. Uh, it sold well. And interestingly enough, uh, several weeks ago, it, it aired in the spring. Um, I got a note from Sherry Redstone, who had just caught up with the doc. And she said, wow, I just saw the secret lives of the oligarch wives. I loved it. And I said, tell the ball. I wrote, tell the boss. I said, oh, never mind. You're the boss. In that project, we turned around in six weeks. Um, Susan, just thinking purely with your journalistic hat on now, um, what has the transition been like from um, 48 hours then president of CBS News um, moving into this, you know, like a production company head kind of role now? What has that um, what has that transition been like? And how how are you able to kind of implement your news sense in, in a different way in this role? Not so much in a different way. And I think the transition has been seamless and organic because essentially what drives See It Now are the basic tenets for what I did uh, at my long time at CBS at 48 Hours as the as the guider of news programming for, for CBS. And in this new job, the sensibilities and the morality and your moral compass is really the same. There is a wider range of topics that we might be able to deal with and a longer period of time to develop a project. Um, we worked on something that I really was exceptionally proud of called 11 Minutes. And it was the five-year anniversary of the largest mass shooting in the United States. It was in Las Vegas. But the, what was different about this, it was five years later. And when you touch something and you can add something to the historic perspective, because so many, so often stories are, are you know, just surrounded and you hear about them for days and days and then it goes away. And when we came back five years later, all you had to do was scratch the surface. But it became so immersive because we were given 350 hours of body cam footage from the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. I don't think they had gone through, I mean, some of it. We took it. They gave it to us. We logged it. I returned it. I gave them the logs as well as to our Las Vegas affiliate. And one of the producers was at the concert and um, it was, she was part of many support groups. So she collected close to 200 hours of cell phone video. There were 20,000 people at this concert. And what, you know, at first we thought four, we were, we were doing four hours. Is that going to be too hard to watch? Just, just too hard. But it became a story about survivors, their first responders, the relationships that formed, 
So the reality of this show, and I did not want it to be an advocacy show for gun control. It was about the human spirit and it was the immersiveness of it that was, you couldn't take your eyes off it. My boss, after he watched, not Sherry, uh, George Cheeks, after he watched the first episode, which I sent him, Rough Cut, he said, my palms are sweating. My heart is pounding. I'm not sure I've ever seen anything like this. And so in this job, I have the ability to take something and expand it and have it have a greater impact and leave people slightly haunted. And I think that that's the big difference is the time. See it now gives you the opportunity with every project to touch people, to leave an impact. And you have the challenge in the current world that we are living in, in this tsunami of content that the challenge is breaking through. The challenge is getting noticed. The challenge is leaving an impact. And the challenge is making sure everyone knows where you are and what's happening. And so we maintain the moral compass and the basic principles that I've that practiced my whole life for See It Now. The market is, is flooded with, um, I think, as you said, you know, a tsunami, a, a tsunami of, of content, more more documentary series and documentaries than we've ever seen before. Um, that has led, you know, I, I've certainly heard some people say that some of these documentaries are potentially rushed, or that they, some of them, lack uh, journalistic rigor. Um, perhaps is, is one way of, of, of framing it. Um, do, do you have a perspective on that? Um, I, do, I do, do you think, think it is a problem? I, I think it's a reality of the current currency that exists. I think that there are some companies where you would have, you know, um, a, a, a multi-month edit who are now demanding that it be edited in X number of weeks and you're meeting these deadlines. I think we have a little more flexibility. Sure, we do a production schedule. We have to stay on a budget. But I, I think it is a problem in that if something needs more time, you should be allowed to let it evolve into premium programming. And I, I, I have heard complaints from other producers, other production companies, that the rush to produce is hurting the content. And, you know, I'm realistic about when we can, offer. Sure. If the, if the network comes to me and, you know, suddenly um, two or three months says, can you do a Holocaust hour for the network? I'll make that work. Because in the, in the world that I lived in, you know, Michael Jackson died at 530 in the afternoon and at 10 PM, I was on with a primetime special. So, you know, it is, you'll utilize as much time as you have, but there is this rush. And I think the rush is caused by the competition and the rush is to to get your project out first, if there is com competition on a certain subject. Um, but I do believe that for the most part, people are are hanging tough on when they can deliver. Um, you know, cable, cable, linear cable, the SVODs, the fast channels, they live by different rules, you know, and while they are, we're all in the same um, swimming pool, this 
is a difference. And I think that difference becomes clear to both the buyers and the sellers. I never acquire. I only either our own IP or Mm co-produce. And when we co-produce, we mean co-produce. We're not like a studio that gives lame notes. We are all having been long time producers. So we look at concepts. We look at how it's going to be shot. We talk to the entire team about the editorial threads that need to be covered. Then we start looking at cuts and, you know, rough cuts, fine cuts, picture lock. And if we need a second rough cut or a fine cut, we do it because it's reputationally for us, nothing matters more Mm -hmm. because we want to maintain the level of journalism, truth, standards of production. You know, I I remember once going up to Columbia University and I was, and this was when I was at 48 Hours, and he said, well, the show looks so good. So how can you claim that you're like real journalism and like run and gun? And I said, looking, looking is polished does not mean you're not a good journalist, but we're in prime time and we're competing against entertainment. So if I'm going to grab you as a viewer, I need to look polished, but I also also have to have the absolute, absolute, no holes barred journalistic safety net that will not let me fall off the mountain. Our shows are screened by standards and practices, by CBS's standards and practices. And oftentimes, if I'm co-proing, they'll have their lawyers and we'll have our lawyers. And we've done battle because sometimes their lawyers are too conservative and we'll have to fight to say, well, well that makes no sense. And so I'll get the two sets of lawyers on the phone. Um, It's a very exciting time. And I think to a great extent, there's a Darwinian aspect over the next year and a half to two years of who survives and who doesn't. We've seen the collapsing of major units, CNN+. Plus. CNN Films, Warner, Discovery, ID, merging. So there are less buyers out there to buy content, but there are just as many producers out there selling content. I prefer being um, a co-pro buyer than I do a seller. So you have to, you know, you have to roll with the punches, you know. Thank God I like went to war and, you know, did those giant stories in my lifetime. Um, because I think it makes you, uh, it, it insulates you to some of the ups and downs of the world of streaming and linear network and, you know, who's on first base. Don't forget something. Linear has an enormous audience. And in the streaming world, you you get some statistics, but I sometimes pine for the linear overnights at 8.30 the next morning, and then the nationals at 10.30. And then a few days later, you get the plus three. And then at seven days, you get the plus seven of the accumulated audience. And you knew exactly. The streaming world is a bit more vague, in case you haven't noticed. Um, You know, I was reading an article where a showrunner said, everybody love the show. You're doing great. You're doing great. Then he gets called the next week and said, the analytics aren't good. We're we're going to stop. I was like, well, well, you didn't give me a chance to fix it. So I think that we are in an evolution. And I used the word evolution before, but we are evolving in time in terms of kind of 
figuring out how to get the best out of everything, how to know who the audience is, because believe me, streaming audiences like linear audiences, there's a certain audience for different streamers. There are different topics that resonate more with certain streamers. So am I conscious of that when I decide on a project? You bet. I'm not going to be self-righteous off the uh, streaming channel. But on the other hand, something like 11 minutes was a bit tougher to sell and it went on for quite some time. And then we we did get Paramount Plus to pick it up. CBS was deficit financing us. And like I could tell my boss was getting nervous because it was on the expensive side as a project. And um, I called the head of Paramount Plus and I went through three or four of the most poignant storylines. And I had her tearing up before the end. And I knew I got her. And she said, yes, we'll do this. So, uh, you know, I guess for me at this stage in my career is I want to be able to watch something that we have been a part of as many times as I have to and still cry or still be shocked or still be amazed at the revelations. That's what this is. This is finding the unique pebble in the beach that is different than every other little sandstone. And that takes patience. It takes taking a lot of pitches, but um, it's a challenge. It's mm-hmm. definitely an intellectual challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, just the last couple for me, Susan, because I know we're kind of running out of time shortly. Um, what, what's the, when you kind of look at the long-term roadmap for See It Now Studios, um, how would you like the next, let's say, two or three years to unfold? What, 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 would, the, uh, what would the dream be in, in that regard? I think the dream would be a bigger budget um, and the ability to coexist with some of the other entities within CBS. So something might start on a linear platform and then continue into Paramount Plus. I'd like to see new innovative ways of becoming one really large company that has spines everywhere. And I also see that the importance of the content, there's there's an attraction to it. And, And younger people, you know, the Gen Zs and the Gen whatever the next... after Z is because everyone calls me Z. So I always stop at Z. Um, People are interested. People want to know. We've done one other interesting thing. We did two series this year or no, one in 22 and we're doing some in 23 and we did another one. And there are 30 episodes of 30 minute episodes. And the first was called Never Seen Again, where we really wanted to use modern technology to help find people that went missing. Now, I, I was blessed with the fact that Tyler Perry called me for advice on a documentary. And when he described it, I said, let me do a little research. I'll call you in a half hour. I needed four minutes. I called him back. The story he had become personally involved with was a young man put in the back of a sheriff's deputy car in Florida. And that kid was never seen again. He put his own money in. He hired the nation's leading uh, civil rights attorney, Benjamin Crump. And I said, Tyler, I said, I have a series debut in May called Never Seen Again. Let me do this as a doc. I'll make it two episodes, but you have to be in it and you have to promote it. So that was a pretty great way to launch a series. So I think that as we grow and as we gain a reputation of being the real deal, editorially, what's the word everyone always uses? I I always laugh. Premium content. I want to just grow our reputation. And if you can push a little money in on the side, 
side, that would be great. But even a limited budget won't stop me from trying to figure out how to get something made. Paramount Pictures, take it outside. So I think you know, somebody said, are we so glutted that it's going to like burn itself out? The doc, docs and doc series? Absolutely not. Will true crime ever go away? Are you kidding me? There are just mile markers. There are real posts in this in this world that you hang on to like you're in a hurricane. And don't let go. Don't let go of your journalism. Don't let go of your morality. Don't let go of a project that you think really deserves to be on. Fight for it. And I'm a fighter, you know? I didn't last this long being a wimp. Um, but I see the future as bright and exciting mm -hmm. and expanding. But only the strong will survive. Um, just a very quick one. Um, are there opportunities? Imagine there is a French or a German story or, and a, like a, a story that has both a U.S. angle and a French or a German or any any country's angle. Can you know? Are you interested in hearing? Yes. Kind of meeting in the middle. Absolutely. Okay. You can pitch me by carrier pigeon. You can pitch me by you know rocket. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, we really like the a foreign story with an Ameri with that has a thread of an American angle to it um, because it expands our horizon. Interestingly enough, most of my co-pros have been with British production companies. Um, and, you know, we find their sensibilities to be very similar to ours. Sometimes we can be a pain in the ass because we're really into those scripts, <laughs> you know, because we're writers and we're producers. But absolutely. And, you know, if somebody came to me with an incredible story that wasn't a U.S.-based story, but was mind-blowing in terms of relatability, I would absolutely consider that. Um, do you think it's any coincidence that, um, obviously, See It Now Studios is, is one um, entity of growing importance, obviously, ABC News Studios have their thing. NBC News Studios, Bloomberg just launched um, Bloomberg Originals. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that journalistically backed entities are becoming an increasingly important part uh, within the kind of documentary side of the streaming wars. Do you do you see that as an accurate statement? I see us as the bridge to the future. I see us what I the reason I really wanted this job, having been at CBS News for so, so, so long, was that I saw this as the future and I can kind of I cross both worlds. So I think that we help lead the path path to a greater future for things that may not last on linear. Susan Zarinsky speaking with Jordan Pinto. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.